Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. There we go. Uh, before we start the sermon today, I want to just ask if you'll do me a favor and join me again in expressing appreciation to our kids, also to Diana, Stephanie, Jen, Raleen, Suzanne, and all the other adults that helped uh, make this year's Christmas program happen. It was happening in the midst of a transition with our children's minister and children's ministry, and so thankful for all the adults that helped make that happen. Would you give them another round of applause with me? <clears throat> our hope each year in doing that is that our, as our kids tell the Jesus story, uh, that this story will take root in their hearts. I mean, it's really incredible to see and here, it's cute to see them dressed up. It's funny to see Truett be done with his costume and just decide to disrobe right in the middle of the, the program. But all of that is done because we want our kids to tell this story. And our hope and our prayer is that as they tell that story, that that story, the Jesus story, uh, becomes embedded in the soil of their hearts and that it becomes the thing that guides their life. Amen. And so it's, uh, it's, it's really, really special to do that together each year. It's also good, I want to say, to be back with you today after being out last Sunday. Uh, last Sunday, several of us from our church family uh, headed down to College Station where we participated in the Bryan College Station <clears throat> Marathon. I, I was just a part of a relay team with Bethany and Randy and Terranel Melvin. Um, and so we just ran six and a half miles, but we subje subjected ourselves to that because the primary beneficiary of the Mercy Project of the BCS Marathon is Mercy Project, and so we wanted to go and support that effort. Uh, Alan Thomas ran a full marathon. If you see him still kind of limping this morning, uh, he did great. Trace um, ran a half marathon, so it was great to be down there, be a part of that event, and support Mercy Project. I'm also thankful that my friend Matt Pugh from Country Bible Church came uh, to preach in my absence last Sunday, and I was fortunate, uh, really fortunate that he was uh, able to do that. I was able to listen to that sermon. I know you were blessed by what he shared. If you didn't get a chance to hear that, go back and find it uh, somewhere on our YouTube or channel or Facebook page and uh, check that out. And so Matt continued in our Advent series that we're preaching together, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which will wrap up, by the way, this coming Saturday and Sunday, uh, as we gather for our Christmas Eve service, if you don't have plans at 5 o'clock on Christmas Eve, we'd love for you to be here for uh, our candlelight service that's a combined service with our brothers and sisters at Country Bible Church. And the community, of course, is always welcome. So invite a guest, a friend, a neighbor, a family member to be a part of that. And then uh, we will. All, Christmas falls on Sunday this year. I'm sure most of you noticed that. So... Uh, we'll at, we're going to have worship Sunday morning. It's an adjusted time, so make note of that at 10:30. We'd love for you to be a part of one or both of those gatherings if you're able to be there. So, in this series, each week, what we've been doing is taking a verse from the the ancient hymn "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel" and thinking about together uh, how it expresses this sense of longing that Israel would have felt as they waited for and anticipated the arrival of the Messiah to earth. And this, this verse that we uh, sang just a minute ago is going to be what anchors our sermon today. And so I want to read it with you, uh, read, read it for you again here just uh, briefly as we kind of think about where we're going to go over the next few minutes. Now, these are the words that we just sang together. O come, desire of nations, bind. In one, the hearts of all 
mankind. Bid thou our sad divisions cease and be thyself our king of peace. As we've walked through this song, each verse of this song, we've seen uh, that the songwriter uses a different name for Jesus. In week one, it was Emmanuel, God with us. In week two, it was Dayspring, which we learned means dawn or like the sunrise. Uh, Last week, verse three identifies Jesus as wisdom from on high. And today, we see a name that you may not have ever heard used for Jesus or used to describe Jesus before, the desire of nations. O come, desire of nations, and bind in one the hearts of all mankind, and bring all of our sad divisions to an end, and be our king of peace. A couple of the verses, as you reflect on what we've been talking about over the last month, a couple of the verses are really verses that kind of tell a story about something that happened in Israel's history. But this verse, I think, is really more like a prayer. Uh, it's, it's this prayer that God bring all of our sad divisions to an end, that God bring together the hearts of humanity as one, that God bring peace to the world and reign as our king of peace, our prince of peace. But even though it's a prayer, I think in many ways, the, the phrase desire of nations actually shows up in the Old Testament. It comes from the prophet Haggai, uh, who has a, a short book in the Old Testament. Now, as I was thinking about the sermon today, it occurred to me that this might be, for many of you, the only sermon that you have ever heard from the book of Haggai. Right, And I don't know if, if you ever had this experience, but back in the day when I was growing up in church... I had, this, I had this experience this week as I was preparing for this sermon that when someone teaching or preaching would say that they were going to preach from a place in the Bible that I wasn't familiar with or I didn't go to often, uh, because back then every, nobody had their phone, you know, their Bible in their phone, on their phone in their pocket. Everybody actually, you know, we were all good Christians and we all carried our actual printed Bible, right? So, uh, so you got nervous when somebody said, we're going to be looking at the book of Haggai because you're thinking, i got to go to the table of contents in the front of the Bible to find out exactly where the book of Haggai is. But I want you to know, fear not. Fear not. If you were nervous about it, today I'm going to project Haggai onto the screen so you don't have to find it. But it's really close to the end of the Old Testament, uh, just a couple of books back from the end of the Old Testament. And Haggai is going to be our sermon text today. And we're going to jump in in Haggai chapter 2. This is what it says in Haggai chapter 2. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and speak to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and speak to the remnant of the people. Now, I want to stop there and just say this might not seem at first reading like a very exciting introduction to the story, but that is unless you understand what's going on here, so I want to explain just a little bit. In, In the year 587 B.C., the nation of Babylon, which we've not necessarily planned to do this, but it's turned out we've talked about a lot in 2022, the nation of Babylon was the most powerful nation in the year 587 B.C. on the planet. Uh, And at that time, Babylon attacked Jerusalem, came into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple 
uh, of God and conquered the city and then hauled some of the Israelites as, you know, as slaves off to, back off to Babylon. And so this is the period of time in the history of Israel known as the exile. And so while Israel, Israel is uh, exiled in Babylon, about the year 539 B.C., the nation of Persia conquers Babylon, so Persia becomes the most powerful nation on the planet. And while Persia is in charge, their king, King Darius, allows Jews to go back to Jerusalem, which is what many of them did, a remnant of them did. And so they're led by two guys, a high priest named Joshua and a guy named Zerubbabel. They went back to Jerusalem, and they went back to build, rebuild their lives, really, to rebuild their homes, to rebuild the city, and to rebuild the temple. And as, as these returning exiles are going, they're saying, you know, well, if we're going to return to our home in Jerusalem, you know what, we have to rebuild the temple because this is something that's important to us as God's people the point of coming home, like we could have stayed in Babylon, but if you're going to go back to Jerusalem, then you've got to build God's temple there. And so they did. They laid the foundation, at least, and they started building the temple. They worked on it for a time, and then, as construction projects can go sometimes, the, con- the project of rebuilding the temple hit some snags. Contractors maybe weren't doing their jobs. I don't know how it worked exactly, but it gr- it's ground to a halt. So that all they have as they're rebuilding the temple is the foundation, some walls, and sort of this half-completed temple that doesn't look very good. It's, it's just sitting there, and it's been sitting there with no one working on it for around 15 years at this point. And that's when two prophets, two minor prophets, we refer to them as sometimes, burst onto the scene. Haggai and Zechariah both have small books in the Old Testament. And these two prophets begin to encourage people. They kind of work in tandem with each other, and they begin to encourage the people to finish the job of rebuilding the temple. So that is what's going on in these verses. Darius has let people go back, and they've started to go back and rebuild their city, rebuild their homes, and rebuild the temple, but it's not going very well. Let's pick up in verse 3. So Haggai set through God through God on through Haggai says, "Ask them, ask the people, who of you is left, who saw that this house that what they're going to refer to that this house several times and they mean the temple, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel," declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua the high priest. Be strong, people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. Next slide. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Okay, so I want you to I want to hit, hit pause again really quickly and say, in some ways, you might have missed it in sort of the reading of this in my reading of this, but what, what Haggai is saying is actually kind of mean, right? I want you to think about it for a minute. 67 years earlier, the temple was destroyed. Babylon comes in, destroys the temple, destroys the city, drags Israelites off to Babylon, and now they've returned. 67 years earlier, the temple was destroyed, and when that, that temple that was destroyed was the temple that Solomon built. 
And that temple was known for its beauty and for its majesty and for its glory, something that Israel took great pride in. And so it was not only, it was not only troubling when Babylon destroyed it, it was also offensive, right? Because they had just destroyed the temple of God. And they would have remembered these people, right? There would have been some people in this group that Haggai is speaking to. Let's say people who were 70 years and older that would have remembered Solomon's temple before Babylon destroyed it in all its splendor and in all its glory, right? And so Haggai is preaching and he says, some of you do remember, don't you? You remember the temple, Solomon's temple. And now, compared to this, this thing you guys started building again, this half-built thing, it doesn't seem like anything, right? Does it seem like anything? He's asking him, and the answer is, no, it doesn't seem like anything significant. Does it look like the temple that Solomon built? And compared to that temple, you know, what they're, what, what they're rebuilding doesn't even look very good at all. It doesn't portray and communicate, you know, power and influence and glory that God has. And so God, through Haggai, is encouraging them to rebuild this thing, right? And God's saying, it doesn't, regardless of what it looks like, God is with you, do not fear Be strong despite the setbacks, despite the construction delays, despite the fact that you started building it and then stopped all of a sudden. Despite all of those things, despite the fact it doesn't look great right now, let's go to work because God's Spirit is among us. And then Haggai says this in verse 6. He says to the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while... I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. These are the words, the holy words of the prophet Haggai. Yes, there is a half-finished building project. Yes, he says, you are discouraged. And yes, it doesn't look very good. In fact, it looks terrible. Look at it, he's saying to him. Right? Some of you remember, he's saying, how great Solomon's temple was, and this is the best you've done so far. But he says, I'm prophesying to you that the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than that of the former temple of Solomon. Haggai says, there is a time in the future when the temple will be this central place for all the world. It will be a place where all the nations will come together in harmony. And where people from the entire earth will participate in God's kingdom. And believe it or not, the preaching worked, right? Which preaching does typically work, I think. That's why I like to do that. Right? They're inspired. And four years later, they dedicated the new temple. Now, was the glory as they dedicated the temple that day greater than the temple that Solomon built? It actually wasn't. It was a temple, and it was rebuilt, but it was not as glorious as Solomon's temple. So was Haggai wrong? 
what exactly, exactly happened. Well, what, what would happen is 400 years later, King Herod would build, well, he would begin a building project. And he would begin a 46-year building project to enlarge and improve and refurbish the temple complex. And for all the terrible things you can say about, we can say about King Herod, right, there, are, there is evidence still to this day of some of his building projects in the Holy Lands. And, and in many ways, Herod's rebuilt temple project was greater in appearance than Solomon's. But, but let's think about it. Was Haggai's prophecy about Herod's temple? That Herod would restore it? Or was Haggai wrong, like I said? No, it's none of that. It's not about Herod. And, and Haggai was, wasn't wrong in, in some ways. He was misunderstood. But this is the part of the story where I have to insist that we have to read the Old Testament in the light of Jesus. Because Haggai was prophesying about Christ as the desire of all nations and the fact that Christ would, bring, Christ would be far more glorious and the peace that Christ would bring would be much greater than anything that the temple had offered the people before. And, and the reason that we know this is because Jesus arrives on the earth as a baby. And then he grows up and he begins his ministry. And as he begins his ministry, he says things like, something greater than the temple is here. This is why Jesus offended people, because he said things like this. The temple doesn't mean anything really to you or me, but for the people, the temple was everything. Because the temple is where God's presence was. And the temple is where people went to meet God. This is one of the things that he says, right? And what Haggai reminds us is that the temple was more important to Israel than anything else. And Jesus arrives and he now says this in this place. In another place, in John chapter 2, John records Jesus saying this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. He's talking about the temple. They're standing in the, you know, in the temple and he says, and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years, they're talking about Herod's building project, to build this temple. And you're going to you know, raise it again in three days? But the temple, John, then John offers this little commentary. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken Right, these words in, in John, they come in this scene that many of you will be familiar with that we all, I, I think we often unfortunately misinterpret where Jesus enters the temple and he makes a whip. Remember this? And he drives out money changers and he overturns tables. Sometimes this story gets used to justify why we can be angry because Jesus was angry, which is not at all what the story is about. And they're, they're like, when Jesus is going into the temple doing this, they're like, what are you doing? Who are you? What do you think you, who do you think you are? Right? And by what authority, they ask him, do you have to do this, to come into this temple and behave like this? And his authority is, he says, this is my sign. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And when John provides that commentary that he was talking about his body, which they understood after he was raised from the dead, Follow me, this is really powerful. He was saying, before Christ arrived on earth, many Jews 
as I referenced a minute ago, loved the temple. It was a, a primary object of their affection. And John's saying, we understand that we understand now on this side of resurrection that many Jews had fallen in love with the appearance of the temple. Thinking somehow that if you have the nicest building in town, that that is what matters the most. The disciples, you read in the Gospels, were in awe of this rebuilt temple that Herod had put all this time, these decades of time into. What John is saying is that, that he understands now is that what made the temple glorious wasn't the gold or the silver that it was made from. What made it glorious was that God's presence dwelt there. And what Jesus understood is that when he arrived on earth, now, watch this, the glory that was hosted in the temple was now hosted in him. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, and our kids just read part of this chapter, these verses to us a minute ago. Paul says, the Son is the image, the appearance of the God you can't see, the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God, watch this, was pleased to have all his fullness, everything that God was, dwelt in Christ, and through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus was now the new temple. God's fullness dwelt in him. And when you think back to Haggai, whether Haggai understood it fully or not, and I think he did not, what became clear in Jesus is this. The temple was not a place in Jerusalem. The temple was a person named Jesus Christ. Forty years after Jesus said those words in John, you, re you destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Forty years after Jesus spoke those words, the temple would be completely destroyed. The physical temple would be completely destroyed. The object of their affection, gone. Completely gone. And what people began to understand, as John writes, they understood on this side of resurrection was that the desire of the nations wasn't a physical building. The thing that Haggai and the people listening to him thought was that if we just rebuild this temple to match the level of glory and splendor that it had in Solomon's day, have this elaborate appearance that it had in Solomon's day, then maybe, then maybe God's peace will finally come. Of course, when you're in the New Testament, you know that, that that peace never came. Because now they're, instead of Babylon or Persia, now they're just, they're, it's just a new nation that's lording over them. Rome has now occupied their land. So there is no peace. They're still lacking and wanting peace. And what brought about God's peace is Jesus himself. And what I mean by peace is the word shalom. When we think about peace... A lot of the time we think about things like no war, right, or sort of the absence of conflict between two individuals, family members, whatever, friends, whatever it may be. That's the way we typically think about peace. But the biblical understanding of peace is this idea of shalom. And shalom is much bigger, much grander, much more elaborate and involved than just a lack of conflict. 
There's a theologian named Cornelius Plantinga who has a really great description of shalom. And I want you to hear what he says about it. This, he says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is how God makes everything wrong with the world right, the way things ought to be, like they were in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the world in the beginning. Not a mere peace of mind, not a ceasefire between enemies, but flourishing, wholeness, delight. And it wouldn't happen, church, until the first arrival of Jesus began to set God's shalom into motion. And all throughout the Gospels, go back and just read the Gospels, looking at Jesus' life and ministry, looking for shalom, and you'll see that we see it happening in the life of Jesus, right? Jesus' life is like this living parable that is working, always working to restore shalom, flourishing, delight, wholeness to people in the world. He does it by giving sight to the blind, by healing the lame, by caring for the outsider, by talking to the woman, by doing the thing in relate, by touching the leper, by healing the sick, by feeding the hungry, loving the sinner, by laying down his life for other people. This is shalom. This is what Jesus is doing in his life and ministry and in his death. What was desired by all nations wasn't gold or silver. Though that's what the Jews thought at the time. It wasn't a physical structure of the temple. Though that's what Israel thought for many, many, many years. The ultimate desire of each and every person is Jesus Christ. Jesus' presence into the world is what brings shalom to our world and to our lives. Jesus is exalted by God to become the desire of all nations. The glory of the temple is finally greater than any temple before it so that the hearts of humankind finally have the thing that they've been searching for. The more glorious temple of which the prophets spoke is Jesus Christ, the body of Christ whose glory and whose whose life provides a sanctuary of shalom for God's people. It is Jesus that has the ability to bind together the hearts of mankind. It is Jesus that is working to bring all our sad divisions to an end. It is Jesus alone that is our king of peace. And this doesn't happen. These things don't happen because of a physical temple or structure. It happens because of the the life and death and resurrection and ultimate return of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, I wanted to conclude our time around this this topic 
of Jesus being the desire of nations with communion. And so I want to offer you another opportunity to pick up a communion cup if you did not do that this morning. And we're going to move into a time around the table. At the end of Jesus' earthly life, Jesus gathered with his disciples around a table. And this, this was, it wasn't like this table. It was much bigger than this table. But we have this table up here as a visual reminder for us about what would have been on that table. A meal would have been on that table and bread and wine would have been on that table. And as Jesus gathered around that table that first time with his disciples, the temple was now his body, and they were not fully understanding that at the time, but as Jesus sat around that table that night, he said something interesting, another another thing that would have been really surprising to them. He said, take and eat. This is my body, as he passed bread around the table. He said, this is my body. The temple made it hard to access God. If you know anything about the temple, there were these courtyards around the Holy of Holies. And, you know, if you weren't a Jew, you could only get so far into the temple. You could only access God to a certain extent. If you were a Jewish woman, you could go a little further, but you still couldn't get to other places in the temple. So the temple, in many ways, made it hard to access God. It wasn't always a place of welcome. But now the the temple is a person, and that person sits at a table with his followers. And for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been sharing the simple meal of bread and juice, bread and wine, as a reminder that they have access to God. That we have access to the Holy Spirit. Of holies, the most inner place because of Jesus Christ. And because of this, we can do what the song says. And we, we acknowledge and we recognize that we feel joy. We can rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel, the desire of nations, has come, not just to Israel, but to the whole earth. Amen? And so we eat this bread and we drink this cup. And we do so, when, when, when we do so, we proclaim the Lord's death. We pro- proclaim that Jesus is Lord until he returns one day. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. And each week, it is made ready for those that love him and for those that want to love him more. And so my invitation this morning to you is to come to the table. Come, those of you who have much faith today. And come those of you who have little. Come those of you who have been here often. And come those of you who have not been here long. Come those of you who have tried to follow. And come those of you who have failed. Come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is the Lord who welcomes you into his life. It is the Lord who gives you access to God. To dine with him. To know him. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And he sits at the table with you and with me. And it is his will that those who want him 
should meet him here. I want to pray the Lord's Prayer together before we take communion. Let's pray these words out loud together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The body of Christ broken for you. And then let's take the juice together as well. And the blood of Christ shed for you. Would you stand with me this morning? Before we're led in another song and close in our shepherd's prayer, I want to just pray again uh, for us this morning. Let's, let's do that. Father, we are thankful for Christ, for his life and his death and his resurrection, for it is Christ that makes it possible for us to access you. And I'll go first in acknowledging, God, that uh, that, is, that is a privilege and a gift that we take for granted, that I take for granted, that we have been given access to you in a way that people longed to have access to you for, in, for many, many, many years. And now because of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, his shed blood and his resurrection, uh, that it is with, with with joy that we can proclaim that Christ has come. God has come. Emmanuel has come. The desire of all nations has come. Not just for Israel, but for all who seek him. And we are thankful, Father, for that gift that we celebrate, that we remember during this season and all the time. And I pray, Father, as we continue to move closer to the end of our Advent season, Father, that you'll help us in just creating a longing and a desire and an expectation uh, for that day when you will bring your final and ultimate shalom to the world, your peace to the world, that when all things that are wrong in our world will be made right because of Jesus' return. And we look forward to that day, uh, we long for that day, and we pray in the all-powerful and almighty name of Jesus Christ, our brother, our Savior, and our friend. And the church said, amen. Let's sing together.